The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been in this series now on generosity for a couple of weeks, and we're going to be in it for just a couple of more weeks. And what we're looking at is beginning with the idea first, before we get to an imperative, which is to say, before we say to you, now listen, you need to be generous people. You need to be people who who give away uh, the resources that God has given you, both in those three T's of time, talent, and treasures. Uh, Before we get there, and so many times we start with the imperative, we start with what you should do. And that's oftentimes why people feel very legal or moral uh, bound by the church, that they start with the doing part. And what we've been trying to develop, what I've been trying to communicate to you is the being part, is the part of who are you in Christ? What is the source of your life? What is the source uh, of all of your resources? And once you realize, and we've talked through the pictures uh, of coming out of Jeremiah, that God says, I want to be your source of living water. I want to be the the fountain that flows out and through you. And you come back and you're constantly and regularly nourished by me. That's where you're refreshed. That's where you keep coming back. Because our tendency, he says, is to go and to make uh, cisterns hewn with human hands that leak. Basically what it is, is we create these things in our world uh, that we serve, and we try to fill them back up and fill them back up and go to them and go to them and go to them, hoping to find life, but in the end, we find just stagnated, poisonous water that doesn't really offer life to us at all. It offers death. It, it offers that emptiness. And some of you know exactly what I mean. I tried to challenge you to, to identify those cisterns in your life. Have you taken time to do that? Because it's in the identifying of them that you can begin to take away their power. uh, That you run to certain things. And they can be as simple as a video game or as sinister as pornography. uh, Or as subtle as your job and your career. uh, Or whatever recreational things you do. It can be good things that are moved into ultimate positions. That's really all that cisterns are. Is they're good things. Is it good to want to enjoy this life and have some money in this life and to be successful? Of course it is. But if that becomes your life, if that good thing moves into uh, an eternal place, then what it's becoming is sort of a pseudo-savior to you. It is becoming your Christ. It is becoming your life uh, in that place. And you need to identify it. And what he says is quit running to those things which are never going to give you life and come running back to me. And last week we talked about part of the running back to him and finding life in Christ is this, that we abide in him, that we stay with him. He says, I'm the true vine and that your life is born out of me and you bear much fruit because not of your abilities to bear fruit, but because of what you're connected to. So if you look at your life and you assess your life, if you're a Christian and a believer and in the church and you say, I want to bear the fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, and all of those things, if I want to see that in my life, if I want to be this, but I'm not seeing it, what's the problem? The problem most likely is a source issue, that you haven't tapped into the true vine, that you're tapped into something else, but it's not producing for you the fruit. Or you're working incredibly hard to produce fruit and you're worn out, you're tired. And so if you're worn out and tired and trying to produce a fruit, the problem probably lies in this. You're not connected to the true vine. And so these last two weeks we've been talking about are you connected to the right source? Are you? So you may not be able to know that fully. But that's why you live in community. Because here's something beautiful about community. 
Community works something like this. It says, sin by its nature hides itself. Imperfections within us hide themselves. And so we need another set of eyes to look at our lives and to help us perceive what's really going on. And so one of the great things about living in community is this. Hopefully you've taken the opportunity with someone who loves you, who has your best interest in mind. Those are good starting points, by the way, before you expose your heart to someone else and ask a deep question. Do they really love you and do they have your best interest in mind? And come to them and say, why do you think it is that I'm not tapping or why I'm not seeing these fruit growing in my life? Or what, what are you seeing in my life? Assess my life for me. I had a friend of mine who was a campus pastor at a university in the Midwest, and a young girl came to him one day and said, why is it that no one seems to like me? No one seems to enjoy being around me. And I come to Bible study, and I'm doing all of this stuff, but why is it that no one seems to want to be around me? And he says, I want you to know a couple of things. One, I love you, and I care about you, and I have your best interest in mind. So do I have permission to answer that question freely? And she says, of course you do, by all means. He said, okay, here's my assessment of being around you now for three years and seeing you. Here's why people don't like being around you. You're horrible to be around. You're mean and vindictive and spiteful, and you are judgmental, and you hold a grudge. So maybe that's why people don't like being around you. She was crushed momentarily until she realized And God broke through in that moment for her to see that there really was a profound problem and it began with her and it wasn't everybody else's fault. So, do you have somebody who's going to love you enough to say, you're really not wearing that today, are you? (laughs) Do you have somebody in your life who says maybe the problem in your life is that you're connected to the wrong source and points you back to Christ? So now we're building on the assumption that you are connected to the right source, and we're going to look today at the imperative, at the now what. So you're connected to the right source, so you have Christ in you, and you're growing in your relationship with him, so now what do you need to do with it? And the scripture says, go and be generous. Our, our, our series here is go and be generous, living from the overflow. So the first thing we're going to look at is the most difficult thing for you to give away. It is the thing that people have the hardest time. They get uncomfortable in their seats uh, when pastors begin to talk about this uh, commodity that you have uh, to give away. And so I want you to see if you can identify it. You probably already have an idea in your head uh, where I'm going with this sermon. So we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and see if your assumption is the same uh, that the scripture is going to present to us today of what is it that is so difficult but so necessary for us to give away. This is God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because, we had become, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this that when we, you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it as the word, not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in the you believers. For you, brothers, being, it became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them. At last, this is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. So, what is the commodity that is so difficult to give away? Most of you, when I was trying to set it up, I went straight to your pocketbooks and wallets. And you went, this is going to be the money sermon. This is going to be the sermon where he comes in and he says, hey, if you really love Jesus and you're really connected to the source uh, and you have this eternal flowing of water, uh, living water through you, of giving life to you, you're going to be incredibly generous in your giving of money. Not it at all. Paul doesn't speak of money at all in this passage. You know what the commodity is that's so difficult for us to give away? It's you. It's your very life. Paul is saying here, I can demand money. It's easy to get you to give money. I I could do and I could say these things. Those are the easy things for us to give away is all the stuff. But to actually give myself away in deep and profound and meaningful ways to the people with whom I come in contact with to share my very, and he uses the word nefesh, my very soul, the very part of who I am that makes me alive, to give that away to you, to entrust it to you, to somehow bind my joy and my happiness and my my life to your life, So that until I can see in you a profound change of joy and happiness and contentment that I myself can never be fully, fully joyful or contented in this life. He said that's the hardest thing to give away. So I'm starting with the hard stuff first. And then in a couple, as the next couple of weeks, we're going to digress into some of the easier things to give away because this is it. Paul is saying first and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes in and takes up residence within a person's heart, it allows them to hold on much more loosely to their very lives, that they can give it away and give your lives away even to the point, Christ said, even to the point of dying for someone else. Lisa and I have a devotion that we keep in our home. It was a gift and one of the best gifts that I've ever been given And every day in the devotion, it looks back over church history, and it picks an event from church history and highlights it. Some are modern, some are more uh, uh, ancient. But so often throughout this, there are pictures of the martyrs who were willing to travel to China and Indonesia and South Africa and South America uh, and into the African inland 
uh, and all over Asia and even into Europe itself and to stand for the gospel for people they didn't know and to be willing to bind their hearts to them in such a way that they were willing to die for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ for these strangers who they knew needed to hear it. That is an absolutely foreign concept to Western evangelical American minds today. Most of you have already rationalized away, what a waste of a life. Wouldn't it have been better if they'd just done this, this, and this, and then they could have done it and stayed their ministry for longer? And there's this great picture in the scriptures in Revelation. It says that the martyrs are gathered around and under the throne of God, saying, how long? How long? In a place of honor, right there by the very king of the universe. And so what Paul is challenging us to this morning is are we willing and able to give our very lives away to others? So first, we're going to ask this question. What does it look like to give your life away? What does it look like to give your life away to other people around you? And I'm going to start with the negative. I'm going to start with what it doesn't look like. The first thing that Paul says, it is not simply the sharing of the words or the theology of the gospel. It is not simply the exchange of information to other people. It includes that, but it is not exclusively that. You see, Paul writes there in verse 8, and he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, He's saying not only that, yes, we have to give that. We have to understand our theology. We have to understand how to articulate the truths and the depth and the beauty of what has happened in the gospel and in the cross and who God is and what his relationship is to man. But it is not in that way only. He says, it's not just giving me words, but it's giving your very life to others. Which is easier? Giving words? Or giving your life. Words are so much easier. And we are even challenged by that. I mean, we're intimidated by even telling somebody else about the gospel or asking them, what, what is your view of the world? What, what's your understanding of eternity? Where does God fit into the whole rubric of your life? Well, what's that all about? We're terrified even to speak words. And so you can imagine, if we're so afraid to even speak words, how much more are we afraid to actually engage and to bind our lives to theirs? But Paul says it's more than just words. You see, theology and the words of the gospel aren't just supposed to be known and understood. They're supposed to be experienced. They're just supposed to be lived out and experienced. I heard a sermon by Scotty Smith one time. He called it, he's the pastor of a church in, in Nashville area, Christ Community Church. And he was preaching on this. He called it the music of the gospel. And he read lyrics. And lyrics are good things. I mean, look at the lyrics that we have today. They're not bad lyrics. They go something like this. Give thanks to God, our God and King. His love endures forever. For he is good. He's above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Do you think the songwriter meant it just to be the words? But a songwriter comes along as well and puts music to it. And that the music comes and and the orchestration and all of it comes and takes the words and makes them incredibly powerful within the life of the person singing them. And it's the same way with the gospel. You know the words of the gospel. Jesus Christ uh, was the son of God. God is God and there was sin in the world and God can't stand sin. And so he had to send his son into the world so that he could live the perfect life so that none of us would uh, have to go to hell. We could believe in him and not by works. And so we trust in Jesus and we get to go to heaven. 
Got it? So are you ready to trust in Jesus? Or maybe you're a little more fiery than that. Anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell, and I don't want you to go to hell, so are you ready not to go to hell today and believe in Jesus? Or do you take the words of the gospel and you live them out in front of another person with weeping and deep affection and you look into your neighborhood and your plantation and on your cul-de-sac and in your school and in your house and you see somebody who doesn't believe those things and with such a deep conviction you begin to live out the gospel in front of them in such a way that they see it in all of its beauty. They, they see it as Blaise Pascal, the wonderful French philosopher uh, and mathematician, said the reason that I came and believed the gospel was because it was the only thing that had a true belief in man and showed the glorious nature of man and the wretchedness of man brought together in the scriptures themselves. So are you willing to live it out in front of someone else so that they see even all your blemishes? That they see the fact that this incredible truth of the gospel saves people just like you who's undeserving of it. And you engage and you live it out and you put music to the words of the gospel. You put a meal with it. You put a band-aid with it. You put money with it. You put life with the words. So it's not just the exchange of knowledge or words. Not just that. The other thing that it is not is sharing your life is not just working hard for someone else. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden for you. He says it is that. It, it, it is working hard on behalf of another person, but it's not just that. And some of you think that that's what it is. It's just working hard on behalf of other people, that I'm going to teach them correctly and I'm going to work on their behalf correctly, but yet there still seems nothing is happening in their lives. Nothing is changing, and it's a burden to you. Because he says it's more than words and it's more than just work. So what is it? Well, what it looks like, and go to a couple of other places in this passage and beyond. Chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. Chapter 3, verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that someone had the tempt, somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you notice that that is not language of a professor or language of an indebted employee? It's a, the language of someone whose life had been connected to another life. He said, I was unable to be at peace until I knew that you were okay. I waited as long as I could, hoping upon hope that you'd be okay, but I had to send word and find out if you were okay. You are my joy and my crown. You have taken up residence in my very soul in a place that now I cannot rest even at night. I cannot begin to be at peace until I know that you're okay. 
That's not language of a professor who just teaches, and it's not language of an employee who just does his work hard for an employer. That's language of a deep affection and relationship within life. Do you even know what that looks like for someone maybe other than your spouse? And even in that relationship, maybe it's not even available there. But Paul is saying that the gospel, when giving it away, what it looks like is this. Okay, here's a deep, profound theological uh, truth that you need to get about what the gospel life looks like as it's shared and given away. You want to know what it is? It's messy. It's messy. Because what happens is I come to you and I begin to share my life with you. And what I do there is I begin to experience your joys. And I begin to experience your sorrows. I begin to laugh with you and cry with you. I I dine with you. I come and I serve you. I come and I bring myself in and I offer myself to you. And I say, as Christ said to the blind man, what do you want from me? That dangerous statement that we talked about months ago. What do you want from me? Most of you don't like asking that question because you can't control the answer. I want you to be with me. I want you to sit. Let me tell you a little something about this week for me. I got to sit in a glorious and privileged place. On Wednesday, I sat and watched the last few hours of Don McCandless's life. He passed away around 1230. I had left earlier in the afternoon. But I got to watch a wife of 60 years and a daughter there weeping and crying and praising God and being with him. I'm affected by that. I have an indelibly marked image of this man in my mind and I'll have it forever. And it's a glorious image to have. Because it's not of a dying man, but the beauty of one transitioning from this life into the presence of others and the love of a family coming around and this huge dog, Max, who is massive dog, mountain dog, coming and somehow recognizing that his master was leaving and vigilant to guard him there. The rest of my day was pretty much a mess. Some of you I didn't get back to on some phone calls. And I went and sat over in Jarvis Park and I just contemplated what I had just experienced and been with. And it's awesome to share your life with someone else in that way. Are you willing to go and sit awkwardly? You know, by the way, you go, well, Bill, you're a pastor. You you should know how to do that. Let me explain to you what seminary is about. I promise you, there's not a sit next to a dying man 101 class. There's not a class that says, let me, let me help you understand how to deal with someone who seems incredibly healthy but just got diagnosed with stage four cancer or pancreatic cancer or just lost their job or, or is in a difficult relationship or lost a child to miscarriage and so desperately wants them. There's no way to train you in that. The only way to be trained in that is to have the Spirit of God through his Holy Spirit so filling you and giving you life that you just go and you sit And you give your life away. And it's awesome and it's beautiful. 
It's not just teaching, and it's not just work. It's sometimes just being with that person and enmeshing your life with them. That's what it looks like. So what's the gospel's role in in producing this in our life? The second question, what's the gospel's role in producing this in our life? The role of the gospel is one that, for you men especially, you're going to have maybe a hard time getting around this. It's in verses 7 and 8. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. The gospel causes a tenderness to take place within your heart that is at some level unnatural. It creates Paul with his understanding of the Greek language, with his understanding of metaphor and of pictures, was trying to, to capture for us and to explain to these Thessalonians what it was like in his relationship with them. And maybe as he was in Athens writing this and he was walking around in the square, maybe as he was thinking, how and what should I pin here? He saw a mother with her newborn child feeding her at the breast. And he said, that's it. That's how I feel towards the Thessalonians. That the gospel, when it comes in, it creates in you a nurturing and an affection and a tenderness that is not typical to your personality. This is not driven by personality type. This is a supernatural work of the gospel within you. So some of you hardened, chiseled men, you need to get the fact that you can be compared to a nursing mother, and that's a beautiful thing. You don't have to check your man card at the door in order to do that. But it's the most powerful and the most courageous man who can set aside at some level that ego and pride and toughness and sit and just be One of my greatest memories in my life was sitting after my father had died and his body was still in the den and I didn't know what to do and I went and I was sitting in my room and this man just came and at one level it was awkward but at another level it was beautiful and that he just sat with me and he cried and he said, I loved your dad. I miss him. He was a big man. Or one of the most powerful businessmen in all of Memphis, Rick Moore, owns an asphalt and paving company that has, he makes tons of money. And he's, he's an influencer. And you come to Second Presbyterian Church with its high steeple uh, and its big walls and its big budget, and you come in and you take your child, moms, and you would come to the nursery and you would take this precious little child and you'd be handing the child off at the security desk and there'd be this six foot four mass of a man who's standing there and he would take this little child from you and he'd say, I'll take care of your child and he'd take the child back to the nursery area and hand him off. And you never knew that this was this big, tough, former football player, business owner who had to negotiate with unions and negotiate with all kinds of stuff, and yet he had a tenderness that could only be described by the gospel coming in and taking up residence within him. You see, the gospel, its work in us is it creates that affection and tenderness. And it's more than just words. And it's much more than personality. Some of you have already made the jump. I did as I was preparing this sermon. I went, yeah, Peter wouldn't have responded that way. You know, Peter, he would have been just like, oh, come on. 
and just like move on to the next thing of going, ah, that's enough. Is this enough time? You know, have you ever been around somebody and you feel like, is this enough affection? Can I move on now? And that's sort of how I picture Peter. You know, sweetheart, are, are, you, are you done with that vent yet? Uh, have, have you got all that out so I can move on to something else? But look at Peter's own words when he writes this in his letter in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly. He used these words of bind yourselves together with deep affection towards one another. To come and to love in that way. The gospel creates this within us. And so finally we'll end here. Why is this important? Why is this important? It's important because the scriptures overwhelmingly teach us that the most profound life change happens when it's life on a life. When it's within the context of intimacy. Now some of you may have come to faith in different ways, but in general, most of us come to faith within a familial relationship. We come to faith within the affection of friends uh, and neighbors. We come to faith when we are hearing and seeing the gospel lived out in this way, life on life, consistently lived out in front of one another. So one of my hopes for our church is this, that as we begin to get the gospel riveted deep within us and then coming and flowing out of us, that we become a place of deep affection and love for one another. And you guys do it so well already. You know what I've witnessed over these last several weeks of stage four cancer diagnoses and deaths of loved ones is this church rallying with meals and cards and food Uh, and gestures of love, and of emails, and of notes, of kindnesses. You guys do it well, but we can still do it better. And we can do it more, and we can spread it out to people who look and go, why are you caring for me? I don't give to your church. I don't even attend your church. You know what I hope for you in your neighborhood, that you begin to take up somewhat of a Catholic thought, Catholic Church works on parishes, and the Episcopal Church works on parishes, and so there was a parish priest assigned to all of these parishes, and the parish priest's job was to go and to know everyone within the parish, and to create in that parish a place of safety where people who had problems could come in and could share their lives within that place. I want you to view yourselves this way. You're the parish priests of your neighborhood. You are the vicars there. You are the ones who have been established there. And that your home is such a place that your neighbors, when their worlds are starting to bump into things, because, and they will, maybe it's because they're your neighbors, uh, but, um, and so they need to come. And so, but they come into your home, or they speak to you over the fence, and what they find in you is a place where you are willing to affectionately bind your lives to them. I don't care if they ever become a Christian. What my hope is for you is that you would become a much better neighbor and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would so profoundly change you that your neighbors say, I love living next to that church-going, Christian, Bible-toting, conservative, whatever words they want to call you. Uh, I love living next to them. I may not agree with everything that they say, but the thing that I cannot argue with against at, at, at any level is their absolute love for me and my family. And you know what you're probably going to find? 
they're eventually going to come and believe in the beauty of the one who gave you the power to love them that way. That's what I want our church to be about. That's what I want our lives to be about. Paul, Paul understood it. So parents, are you willing to engage fully in a way with your children so that you don't just give them right theology and catechize them in just the proper way, but that you share your life with them and the struggles of your life? I imagine my boys one day, when they look back, that they can say this about their mom and dad. They lived it boldly in front of us with all its glory and all its mess. I never heard my dad say he was sorry. I never saw my father cry. I never saw him and my mother come back together to reunite after an argument. I never saw it. I heard it every week in the pulpit, but I never saw it in my home. Parents, are you willing to live out the beauty and the glory and the mess of the gospel in your home to engage the hearts of your children? Teenagers, are you willing to live it out in such a way on the campuses that your friends see the beauty of the gospel in that way? In your workplaces, in the places where you play, that we live it out in a way that people come and go, I'm not sure I understand all the words that you're giving me, but I understand your heart, and I want what you have. Give your lives away. The rest of the stuff is easy, and we'll talk about that later. Let's pray. God, thank you that you gave us the most profound example in Christ, but the most incredible power in Christ to give our lives away. That because now he has taken up residency within us and lives through us, that we can, by the same power that raised him from the dead, the power that has seen him ascended into heaven, the power that is living now in him and by him and through him, that power is in us, and we can recognize that it's very little to give our lives away. We are but a vapor for a season of time in this life. And in those moments, we can have an eternal impact if we're willing to lay aside our lives in love for others. Father, would you bless this church in that way? Would we be a church, maybe our programs aren't the best, maybe our buildings aren't the best, and parking is a mess on Sundays, and the staff has got its issues, but we really love well. And we've bound our messy lives into the messy lives of Hilton Head and Bluffton. And we've seen people love a Savior who came to redeem messy lives. We praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.